Hello, and welcome to The Real Writing Process. I'm your host, Tom Pepperdine, and this episode, my guest is the Hollywood screenwriter, director, and now best-selling crime author, Tim Sullivan. Now, Tim has the kind of illustrious career that you can spend a lot of time going over his back catalogue. It's definitely worth checking out a lot of the films and TV that he's worked on, but quite honestly, he's now writing books set in Bristol. I live in Bristol, I was born in Bristol, Bristol is in my blood, I have questions. Especially because he doesn't live in Bristol, and the books are really good. But yeah, so that's what we focus on, that's what he's writing at the moment. The DS Cross crime thrillers, so you've got The Dentist, The Cyclist, The Patient, and coming out in November 2022 has just been announced, The Politician. If you like crime books, give them a read. They're really, really good. And he self-published the first two and sold over 200,000 copies before getting a traditional publisher to pick him up. And uh, he's now doing two with them and seeing how that goes. When you self-publish to that level of success, I have questions and we get into it. And for the writers amongst you, have a notepad and pen to hand. You will want to take notes. This is a guy who has great pedigree with his writing. We really go into that with this episode. I think it's really good if you want to understand a successful writer's process, the granular detail in this and the advice that's given. He's just really generous uh, with this. So thank you, Tim. Uh, he's also the chair of the Writers Guild of America in brackets west because it's so fucking big it's got two um and yeah so he's just he's very generous with his time really pleased to have him on the show really good guest and i think my questions were all right anyway let's not hang about jingle interview outro let's go Hello and uh, welcome. This week, I'm very pleased to say my guest is Tim Sullivan. Tim, hello. Hi, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. My first question, as always, is what are we drinking? Because it's four o'clock in the afternoon, it we're is. drinking Diet Coke. But, um, it would normally be tea. I'm a bit of a tea. I'm a tea obsessive. Okay. I have to have loose leaf tea. In fact, my character is the same. Yeah. Probably for me, yeah. But I've had enough tea by now <laughs> that I have to stop. Okay. Something a bit sweeter, um, yeah, but still getting that caffeine hit. Something that kind of says, oh, it's almost the end of the day. Little treat, little treat at the end of the day. Yeah. yeah. Okay, great. And where I'm speaking to you now, is this uh, your office? Is this where you do your writing? Yeah. So this is my office, the top of my house. It's been my children's room for years as a nursery. And then, well, I had it as a study first, and then they came along. So I was booted out <laughs> and then they wanted their own rooms. So I couldn't get back in, but now they've left home. So okay. I've now got my own little okay. writing heaven garret. <laughs> Excellent. So how long is, since they've left, how long have you had this as your writing space? A couple of years. Never really had a proper writing space before. Yeah. Always dreamt of having a shed in the back of the garden, but frankly, yeah. the garden's not big enough. I live in London. <laughs> yeah. And um, do you find having a, a separate space, has that really helped you focus in on your writing? Do you find that your writing sessions are more productive or that your writing sessions are longer? My writing sessions became more productive when I made my working day shorter. Okay. I discovered this years ago that my best writing time is in the morning. Oh, to answer your question, yes, I need a separate place. I used to have an office in Soho, but it just got so expensive. Yeah. But yeah, I need that notion of when you write, it's all, almost like you're in a parallel universe to other people, that your work isn't really serious or proper. Mm. And in fact, the pandemic's been uh, one of the benefits of it is that other people now work at home. They understand what I do. But my routine is I, I tend to work really well in the morning. And ever since I, I said to myself, four o'clock, I don't write anymore. Mm. I'm, I can edit. I don't stop working at four. Yeah. But I don't have to write beyond four o'clock. Because okay. otherwise, it was just an endless end of day. I could stop at any time. It's really focused it, which has been quite cool. That's good. And do you work in silence? Do you like having like ambient music? It, that... it, it depends. It okay. depends where I'm at, really. Okay. Um, I write longhand. I'm a fountain pen obsessive as okay. well. I keep saying obsessive. Yeah, my process is I write longhand. And then I, I write in long notebooks. And then I put that into the computer. And then I've got a 
wonderful iPad, I put it into the iPad, and then I write all over the iPad. Okay. As a, as a longhand obsessive, have you found your fountain pen? Do you have a collection of fountain pens that you use for different characters, or is it just that you have your very specific pen for writing? No, I have, I have a collection, okay. an absurdly um, <laughs> expensive collection of Pelicans and Mont Blancs and Parkers and vintage Lamys, and I use them. They all have different inks. I have about 15 different inks and um, different shades of blues and reds. Okay. And I start in an A3, you know, yeah. a very big art sketchbook. And I sketch out in different colors, different sections of where I think I got ideas and then move on from there. But I like the notion also that I'll, I'll write for a day and, and then it just delineates the day yeah. for me. Um, yeah. When you look back, you can really see yeah. you know, yeah. where your prolific bits were. And you're saying like with the A3 and the multicolors, so when you're mapping out ideas, that's all freehand, longhand as well. And do you assign yeah, a, a color for character development, a color for plot? Do, do you break it down that way as well? Exactly right. That's exactly okay. what I do. And it, it varies from book to book. But yeah, because I can often have snatches of dialogue from scene two thirds of the way through the book at the beginning. And I'll write those down in green. But I like to be able to see it in a kind of map format okay, um, yeah. that I can then refer to. It comes from film writing, really. Yeah. Putting scraps of pieces that move around. I find that really invigorating. So when you've got all these scraps, does that then go into an outline where you start mapping out like, the, the chapters and, and the rhythm of the book? Or is it more as a reference tool as you start writing your first draft? It's more of a reference tool. I mean, I tried it in the first book and it seemed to be really successful for this series of books. I know what has happened. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily know how it's happened. Okay. And I don't necessarily know who's done it, but I probably do know who's done it. Because what I like to do is I like to go along and I like to discover yeah, as I'm yeah, writing. So basically, I think that what's happened looking at the books is that the detective and the reader are discovering mm. at the same time as me. Okay. which gives it a kind of interesting impetus, but it can be a bit alarming at times. <laughs> well, I suppose, you know, once you've done the first draft, you can go back and neaten things up on a second draft. But it's funny because I think with crime thrillers, a lot of people might assume that the author starts with the crime and then works their way back and having discovered it. So it's really uh, exciting to hear that if you go the opposite way and you very much are the reader for the, the first draft. Yeah, no, I, I'm very much the reader and 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 the detective is as well. I don't have scenes where you see a suspect mm. as a third party scene with someone else. I don't allow myself that. It's quite restricted because I don't want the reader. It's the same in filmmaking. I don't want the reader to be ahead of the movie yeah, or the book, or the character in the book. I don't want them to know more than the character does. Yeah, um, no, absolutely. And there are times when I'm writing where I think, oh, my. I have no idea where this is going. And then I think that's really terrifying, but it's probably a good thing because the reader's in the same place. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's what I liked um, with the cyclists, especially, is there's those characters where that they act suspicious, but it's more just human reality. It's just like people uh, have pride, people have fear, and people act in irrational ways. Yeah. And I feel that, the personalities are very authentic. I felt that was uh, really good. So when developing characters like that, do you do a personality reference? Like, oh, are they kind of bits of people that you know? Are they just sort of bits of you, you know, sort of characters that you've seen before? Uh, how do you flesh out your characters in your stories? I think they're bits of, there are bits of people I know, bits of people I've observed, bits of things I've read in the papers. For me, the success of any good crime novel is its central character and i think that to me uh, many people may disagree to me the character is more important than the crime with, without a shadow of a doubt yeah that, that's um, why people return to a series I think. yeah and and for me it's not important enough to have your central character you've got to have tertiary characters mm. and i think in a sense i got that from again from screenwriting that you always need to have a good supporting cast. And that's how I view my books, with a good supporting cast. It's the same thing with, I can't bear unwarranted red herrings in crime mm. because you can always smell them. Yeah. You can always see them. So my red herrings, such as they are, have got to be earned. 
Mm. And and as you say, it's about people's reactions. You, you've got to understand you're dealing with a detective, a policeman, and people always respond differently to policemen mm. than they do to other people, particularly yeah. if they're talking about a murder. Yeah, It puts them on edge, and that interests me. You know, the character, I get carried away with character. I just, I'm reading Truman Capote's In Cold Blood at the moment, which I've never oh, read wow. before. I thought I ought to read this. It's just brilliant. And yeah. what he does is he paints the characters from, mm. from documents and stuff of the people involved. And you mm. just realize this is a lesson mm. in writing crime fiction, this book. This is what everyone's got to do. Atmosphere, character, and then yeah. plot. Yeah, breaking my own rules here and like you know, sort of revisiting the start of your series. How did the character of Cross develop? Because obviously the unique selling point is that he's a brilliant detective, but he's on the spectrum. So he has those lack of social skills. But... That, I think, especially in you know, 2022, you want to make sure that's an accurate portrayal because otherwise you could be demonized on social media if, if, no. if it's an unfair representation or a false representation. Did you feel pressure creating that? And was there sort of like a deep dive into autistic behaviors to make sure it, it was accurate? Yeah, no, I didn't feel any pressure because I started formulating this character about six or seven years ago, which was before all the cultural appropriation and other appropriation came to the fore. But it, it's an area that had always interested me from my experience of it with friends, other people, friends, children. And so I, I did, a, I would say, about two years research before I put pen to paper. And I, and I met some of the world's leading authorities on, I mean, my character specifically got Asperger's, which now is more commonly referred to or because Asperger was discovered in 2018 to have had links to the the Nazi party in terms of children he was right. passing off right. terrible and people often refer to it now as autism spectrum uh, disorder but I don't like that because I don't think it is a disorder I think that's pejorative so it's autism autism spectrum condition yeah. you know some people with Asperger's prefer still to call it Asperger's because mm. they don't like change it's a spectrum everyone's yeah. different some people with Asperger's will want to call it autism spectrum condition because they need to be right they need yeah. to be correct but it's not a gimmick. It's where he works. And in a sense, that, that was the most important thing to me. And so I've researched it diligently. It's not something you can make up. There's been a famous TV series, but I won't mention the name of. And I, I thought she was portrayed very poorly from an autistic point of view. I thought it was very, I thought it was very artificial. I suppose where it came from, essentially, was when I look back on some of the great detectives like Dupin mm. and Sherlock, in modern day parlance, would look at them and go, you know what, they, they've got, the, some of them, they feel like they've got attributes that are, yeah. that could put them on the spectrum. And it, it's a real challenge to write accurately in that way because he, my character doesn't have gut instincts. Mm. He doesn't have theories. He goes with what's in front of him. Yeah. So as a, as a novelist, that's really limiting, mm. but that's the challenge Yeah. because it's what makes him so great. And I had about 4,000 reviews on Amazon and there were a couple of my cousins, um, autistic he's not like this another one said only autistic people should write autistic books which is a point of view but i had dozens and dozens saying my son has asperger's how did you get inside his head yeah and i had one one chap who wrote saying i run a small company and we've got someone in our company he's always been really, really talented but quite difficult to deal with and having read the dentist mm. i can see what it is i bought five copies for other members of my staff and that was a huge compliment. So I hope I've got it right. I hope that I continue to read. I continue yeah. to research. But well, yeah, there is pressure now. But I think that also, whilst you have to respect it, that this is also fiction. Yeah. Also, I, I personally, I always feel that people are multifaceted and everyone's experience of the world is unique to them and their environmental, cultural, you know, and the events that have happened in their lives. Inevitably, you will get some people who go, I relate to this and I can't relate to this at all because that's a person. You have that with everyone. There, there are people you can relate to and there's people you can't. The fact that there is an audience that it is resonating for is brilliant. And I think that, uh, like you said, the, the, the person with the small business, when it's representation and when it's representation that people can understand, it is difficult when it's not your personal story, but people only have access to these stories if people research them because it's that double-edged sword you can only write from your point of view and i can only write 
white middle-aged men so you, you have to balance that and I think like you said you spent two years researching before you put pen to paper and I, I lived with a neurodiverse person that's the term I use neurodiverse for a number of years and I certainly saw things that I recognized and things that resonated with me but I don't term myself neurodiverse so I, I can't deem myself as an authority but I felt it was also a sympathetic and it's front and center and it's the, like you say it's the reason for his success not a hindrance that he has to overcome and I think that portrayal is important and I think that's what is part of the appeal really. yeah I mean I think in this you know as I say in the, in the book his condition is his gift yeah and um I showed it to one um expert in this country really eminent man and he just said I've never read I showed him a script form of it and he said I, I haven't read something like this where someone with Asperger's has been front and center of every scene mm. and I think it's fantastic but you know there are other characters and it is just what drives him and the the reaction I've got from people is that I'm now being published I self-published to start with and the publishers have done research into what people like about the books and it's George George is is what who everyone loves and yeah. feels for and is infuriated by it at times <laughs> yeah. um I I worked with a, a neurodivergent person on a film set once and I didn't understand it at the time but mm. if you asked him to do something whatever it was can you go and find out about a he would go off to find about out about a you'll then be in the middle of an urgent meeting about something really critical and he would just come and barge into that conversation and say oh a is this because that's the way his mind worked yeah. he'd been sent off to do this and he must come back and report as soon as possible yeah and one thing i wanted to pick up that you just said uh, earlier when you were showing the expert was that it was in a screenplay format and obviously you have uh, background in film before writing novels was it your initial thought to write this as either a tv series or film in, in a screenplay that, form? that was yeah that was the initial yeah. thing but i'd always wanted to write a novel mm. and and once i'd written the script of it i just thought there was so much more it's really interesting i think you get more about the character from the book than you do from the script and and i just thought oh forget it I, i'm gonna write this into books oh i'm gonna see if i can I didn't know if I could. So, I, yeah, I just set myself the, the task of seeing if I could. Yeah. And going from the screenplay to uh, novel format, obviously they're very different disciplines. What was it that made you choose to self-publish your book? Did you attempt to take it to traditional publishing or was it just in your gut that you felt that you wanted to self-publish your first book? Not really. I, I, I thought that um, the thing about screenwriting is even if you're successful, 80% of what you write, 80% of what you're paid to write, never sees the light of day. Yeah. It used to always end up on a shelf gathering mm. dust in some executive's office in Hollywood somewhere. Now it doesn't even get a script form. It just ends up in a file somewhere on a yeah. computer. And that's really frustrating. It's like, you know, I spent a year on Shrek 4, which is a fantastic year. Really enjoyed working with Jeffrey Katzenberg and DreamWorks. It was just brilliant. But at the end of it, a director came on board who just wanted to make a totally different movie. So you move on with a different writer. So you're left with a script in your hands, but that's it, yeah. different movie. So with self-publishing, I, I looked into it. I did a course on it. I invested in it financially. I, I employed Peter May's cover designer to, to do my covers. And but it was the notion that, you know, I was writing in January and I told myself I will publish in July. And I published in July and it seemed to do well. And then people started writing about it. And I thought, these people have read my book. Yeah. That's just so brilliant. And this was six months. Yeah. And, and then I already had, the second book was already underway. So it was just thrilling, not having to wait for publishers, not having to wait for people's opinions. Mm. This is me. Here <laughs> I am, unfiltered, copy edited, and proofread. Mm. Yeah, so that, that was brilliant. Yeah. You know? yeah. And so now uh, the latest one, this is your first that's been written under a traditional publisher. They bought the rights to the previous yeah. ones. Is that right? Yeah. And so how did that develop? Would, uh, did they approach so you? What happened was um, in self-publishing, the secret of self, there are several secrets of self-publishing, but the main secret is to be able to have two books. And after you've sold the first book for a few months, you make it free, mm. which isn't as easy as it sounds because 
thousands of books are published free on Amazon every day. So the question is, how do you become visible? How do you, you know, get the book noticed? So yeah. the book had been noticed. People were reading it. I'd learned about Facebook advertising and Amazon advertising. And then the second book came out in the September and it's the small numbers, but on day one, I already had a, a one and a half thousand pre-orders for the book. That's before it's published. By the November, so four and a half months after the, the dentist had been published, I'd had over 200,000 downloads yeah. of both books. And I've been picked up by Barnes & Noble in the States when the dentist was free mm. as their free book of the week. And when the cyclist came out, they read that and they made that one of the top 25 must-read ebooks of the fall. And the dentist, when it was free, then suddenly topped the charts in crime thrillers for like 10 weeks. So the dentist wasn't being advertised anymore, but it had a life of its own. Yeah. It was just, I was getting 150, 200 downloads a day. That's insane. That's and because it's great with Amazon, can you see it on a yeah. daily basis? And um, so my wife said to me, we both have a TV and movie background. She said, I don't know, but it strikes me that's quite a large number. <laughs> I went, well, I, I don't know either. She said, but I think no one knows about this because you don't get reviewed. You don't get any attention mm. as a self-publisher. So she said, I think you need some PR because the patient was going to come out a year ago. Mm. So I went, okay. So I, I researched mm. who are the good you know, book PR companies, came across Midas PR and said, and we did a deal that they, they would publicize the next book, The Patient, which was coming out whenever it was, February of last year. And they read the book and then they went, our CEO has started up a literary agency. Can we show it to him? And I went, nah, I'm good. I'm, you know, everything's fine. Yeah. The self-publishing lock is pretty good. Yeah. Anyway, so he read it and went, you need to publish this traditionally. This needs to be out there. You need more exposure. So Head of Zeus came on board and it's been a great experience. Here we are. That's great. And uh, I, I want to go back a bit, but yes, we'll have the difference between self-published editing and, and uh, traditional published editing. But I really just was fascinated by the fact that you said, right, in January, I'm going to publish by July. And certainly with screenwriting, there is a, a, a fast turnover of drafts and you know, sort of a lot of editing. I'm sure you were confident in you can get the, the required amount. But when the structure of a novel is so different from a screenplay, what was it that gave you that confidence that you could write that many words? Because obviously there's a lot of white space on a screenplay. It's, it's quite dense at writing a, a novel. And so how was that mapped out? Was that just saying, well, I can average this many words a day. And so in a, you know, sort of this many months, I'll have a hundred thousand words. How was it that calculated that you could go in January with confidence, it's going to be out in July? I don't know. <laughs> was, it was just, was just a no science to it. It's okay. just, yeah, I should be able to do that. Yeah. And it worked out all right. I did send it to, I sent the first 10,000 words to a friend of mine who's a prize winning novelist and teaches writing and is very honest and said, yeah. look, you know, let me know what you think. If it's rubbish, I, I'll stop. And then about three weeks later, I can't really say what he said, but it was very short <laughs> okay. to the point that, that he thought it was good. And uh, so I had the confidence there. Then, yeah, I, I believe in deadlines. I think yeah. deadlines are good things. And I believe in testing yourself. And I believe in feeling nervous about stuff. Yeah. You're better when you're you're on edge. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I think for our listeners, it's a very different way of working from a very different background. But I do hope that it will resonate with some people that they, they do get energized with deadlines. Some people panic that you work best you know, with that pressure is great. Um, with the drafting process, because obviously you said earlier that you're in line with the reader and uh, George Cross and finding out what's going to happen. What's your rewriting process? So, so once it's got to the end, you go, oh, they did it. And that's how they did it. Um, is, it what, what, yeah. is it much longer editing than the first draft? Did you like whip through a first draft and then you know, spend months editing? You know, or is it kind of 50-50 of your writing time? It's 50-50. I mean, what I did and what I learned from the online course I did was I managed to recruit about 30 readers okay. with the cyclists, about 100. Wow. And so I would send them a free copy and ask them what they thought and then get 
people I didn't know, some people I did know, and you would find your way there. But I, I th always think it's good to have a distance from something because, you know, you, you mentioned rhythm earlier and, and rhythm is a fundamental skill in screenwriting. If you, if you've got good rhythm, when you write a screenplay, that rhythm will translate itself into the cut, despite the fact that it's gone through the filter of an actor, a director and an editor, it will find its way. So when I read something, I get a sense of, ah, oh, this is too long. Mm. Or in The Cyclist, you know, I, I chopped away at The Cyclist. It's shorter than The Dentist because I'd written stuff that I didn't feel was moving us in the right direction mm. when I reread it. So I was quite savage in, yeah. in cutting it back, maybe a bit too much. But yeah, it's the rhythm of where you... The thing about discovering stuff along with Cross, I didn't set out knowing that would be what happened. I set out knowing that it's the way I wanted to write. I didn't know what the benefits were. For me, and again, it's a personal opinion, I don't like to have it all mapped out from A to B to C to Z. Because for me, it's then painting by numbers. Yeah. You know what's happening. You've got to fill in the scene. Yeah. I don't want to do that. I want to be in that position where I don't know where to go next. Mm. And, you know, what I have done, what I'm developing, and what I like about this writing process is that I feel I have an awful lot to learn. Mm. And I'm really willing to do it. So yeah. I hope I'm going to get better. Yeah. And I hope people will see that it gets better. So now I start with a crime. And I start in the background with an, an idea of an ancillary cast, people with jobs. I don't know how they're related. I don't know how they come into the mix. And then I figure it out. You know, I, I haven't been this happy writing for years, yeah. you know. Well, I guess, you know, so from what I know of uh, screenwriting, which is next to nothing, but it's it's very collaborative whether you want it to be or not there's a lot of voices influencing the final product of what goes on screen like you uh, said with Shrek 4 you know sort of a director came in had a completely different vision took on a, a completely different writer whenever something goes on the screen the director has the story they want to tell as much as the blueprint that was given in the original screenplay dialogue might be tweaked sometimes if you have a big Hollywood megastar, they have their own screenwriter that writes just the way they like to speak. And so when you move away from that and you're just writing and it's just you, it's a much purer story. It's very much from your brain onto the page and it's not diluted or distracted through too many cooks, I guess. So I can fully understand why this makes you happier because... They're purely your stories. Yeah, I mean, I, I love writing. I still write film scripts. I'm writing two at the moment. It's just different. Dave Mamet said that filmmaking is a collaborative process. Yeah. But in the case of the screenwriter, that collaboration forms, you know, obeying the instruction, bend over. <laughs> yeah. But no, I, I've worked in America a lot, and there's some really smart people working in the film industry, obviously, and, and you're lucky when you work with them, you know. But the thing is, there's no formula. No one knows how to make a great film, essentially, it just happens. Mm. And it's a change. Change is always often welcome. You know, it's different having a book. I couldn't believe it when the hardback edition mm. came through last week. It's like, oh my God, yeah. it's an actual book. And there's something very different watching your work. Watching your work as a writer on a screen is a bit more squirmy than okay. reading your book. Yeah. I know some writers feel to get the, the characters to have different voices, kind of cast a, a rough, if it was to be a movie, like actors in their heads for certain characters. Um, is that something that you've ever done, either with your screenplays or with Cross? Is there like any voice that you, you, you hear when you write uh, Cross? No, with Cross, deliberately, it's an open thing. And then the thing with movies, it's really dangerous to write for someone because then you can only see that someone in the part yeah. and then they don't want to do it. And that's devastating. As soon as you say, oh, X is this, and the producer goes, that's great. And then they can't get X. Yeah. It's a disaster. So just don't go there. Okay. Um, and it's very limiting. I think, you know, you're limiting yourself to, to the way one person performs. No, that's, that's a fair comment. A thing I do want to return to about uh, the readers that you have when you've got... got the story as far as you can take it before you get input 30 people 
are on the dentist and a hundred people for the cyclist. Um, a lot of the authors I speak to may have four beta readers or one or two. How, is it through the courses that you've taken that you were able to access that large number? How, how do you get a group that size uh, to read an unpublished book? Basically, once the, the dentist had come out, the dentist really was primarily people I knew and some other people. By the time the cyclist came out, I had an email list that was growing of people. That's the other great thing about self-publishing. So you create an email list of people engaged in your work who, who want to hear from you. Some authors, I think there's a real balance. I, I've signed up to a lot of authors' newsletters, see how they do it. And if they email me once a month about offers on books, I get a bit cheesed off. Yeah, It's not really what I want. I don't want to be sold something. So in fact, I haven't, because of the patients being held up, I haven't emailed my list for maybe six months and I'll start you know, telling them about the patient and then other stuff that I'm doing, but not mm. please go and buy the dentist and the cyclist. Yeah. So by the time the cyclist came out, I had a lot more. So I sent out an email saying, who would like to read the next book? Mm. Who would like to read the next book quickly and had a really great response. And then I kept that. In fact, the same hundred read the patient before it was picked up by a publisher. And you just get some, you know, you, you get really good pointers mm. and mistakes. And uh, you said you, sort of you had a copy editor for your self-published uh, book? Yeah, that was more really a proof reader. Mm. She was more, um, I couldn't afford, <laughs> um, you know, because, you know, when you start out, this is all your own capital going out. Yeah. But fortunately, as I write screenplays, that was paying for it. So she did a great job proofreading, but then... The patient had a professional copy editor, and that was like an eye-opening experience because there's always a sense of dread when you get studio notes. And so I had a sort of sense of dread with the notes for the patient, and they turned out to be the best set of notes Great. that I ever received mm. in any field. And she'd taken the trouble without being asked to have read the first two books yeah. before she read the patient. So that, So it was really... And it was, you know, really interesting in terms of pacing mm. and what knowledge is being kept from, you know, you're letting stuff out that you shouldn't necessarily, mm. even across notes, you want the audience to know, the reader to know at this point, because you've got the rule that the reader can't be ahead across, but cross, yeah. it's difficult for him to be ahead mm. of the reader because we're discovering along with him. So it's holding back bits of information that he comes across was really interesting. Yeah. And um, you finished the manuscript for four. Is that going through edits at yeah, the moment? That, that's, yeah, that's with my editor for the first read at the moment. So that comes out in November. Okay. And it's the same editor now going forward? Yes. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And then they decide whether they... And that's the other thing about self-publishing. You know, they, my publisher will then decide, depending on how these two books go, mm. whether they'll move on with me, you know, because it's a four-book deal. Mm -hmm. But... If they don't, then I go back to self-publishing. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's, but I'm hoping that won't happen. You've always got that, not safety net, but that other way of getting your work out yeah. there. And I'm going to return right back to planning a, a question that I, I skipped earlier that I, I should have picked up. It's quite important to me. Uh, with world building, uh, you live in London, but you chose Bristol as uh, the setting was it like an arbitrary process well this is a, a city that i have experiences you know from my childhood i might as well uh, use it or was it something that you felt lent itself to the story that actually this would be a good place for cross to live why did you choose bristol i think bristol was an easier place for cross to live i think that the city being smaller mm was an easier place than, say, London. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think I actually made that decision about Cross, but now that you bring it up, you can see that he would function much better there than in, say, London or Manchester or Edinburgh. But I love Bristol. Yeah, I love the city, and I know it well. And I wanted to write about it. I wanted to... I think it's always important to write about somewhere you know. Mm. So, yeah, so that was important to me. Yeah. And uh, you just mentioned uh, Manchester there. Um, before we started recording, you did mention that you're looking to start a, uh, a new series set in Manchester. Was there something about the character that you felt? And can you talk much about what, why you've chosen Manchester for your new uh, series of books? Um, yeah, it's, it's about an estranged father and his, his daughter, who's become a young barrister who works in Manchester on miscarriages of justice. And the only way he can get back into his, her life, because she doesn't want 
anything to do with him for various reasons is to kind of become her quasi-private eye yeah. and provide her with evidence for the case that she can't do without. So at the centre is a really complicated relationship. I lived in Manchester for 10 years. I worked for Granada TV as a, a researcher and director. I directed drama up there, things like Coronation Street, Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. I love Manchester. So again, it's somewhere I know. It gives me an excuse to go back up there. It's changed radically. I haven't been there for 15, 20 years since yeah. I directed the last um, episode of the first chunk of cold feet and even then it had changed but now it's you know the center of the city used to be dead at weekends and now it's the place to be yeah um you've got media city as well with all the bbc yeah sort of moved yeah up there the, as in well. salford yeah but yeah. that area i filmed in that area it was dead yeah. we used to film bits of sherlock around there because we could easily recreate victorian streets but yeah that one it's it's not a police procedural but it's Again, it's about relationships and it's about miscarriages of justice and the development of technology, particularly DNA, is fascinating. Thank goodness we don't have the death penalty. Yeah. You know, but when you come across these cases of people who have served 15, 16 years in prison for something they didn't do. So that that intrigued me. And yeah, I, I, I love Manchester. So it's, you've got to spend time in a place. It's not like going and visiting a place and researching. It's getting to know how the heart of a city beats of where the different areas are have they changed yeah. so your character can look you know there's an area next door to piccadilly station in manchester that used to be warehouses that were abandoned and a couple mm. of recording studios where people like the happy mondays used to record oh, yeah. and now it's this booming area of the city so yeah. your character can reflect on that reflect on that change you can't write that if you don't know it yeah no, absolutely. Yeah, it's the Creative Quarter, I think it's called, or the Arts Quarter of Manchester now. Yeah, that's yeah. right. They're, they've all got different quarters. There used to be bits around, you know, the Palace Theatre and stuff that people yeah. used to shoot America for, as long as you didn't go too high. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned there, like, with DNA evidence and things like that. Obviously, with criminal investigations now, the technology that's available, how do you go about researching the, the police procedure and making sure that's accurate and yeah, up to date, I guess, as techniques developing all the time. Well, I think in terms of procedure, you speak to the police. And I think the, the fact of the matter is everything's got to be authentic. But in terms of, you know, police investigation, obviously novelists sometimes cut corners, yeah. sometimes justifiably, sometimes because they don't know. But in terms of techniques, what's really fascinating if you study the history of, of forensic science is how there, there have been various big steps in technology that really shook the world of crime and then crime fiction mm. so you've got in paris you've got a man called bertillon who he invented the mugshot okay. he invented the standardized mugshot in the 1870s and up until that point so the arrival of photography was seismic mm. you had the arrival of fingerprints the arrival of photography because before photography policemen used to make notes of what they saw at the crime scene and now suddenly you had crime scenes accurately recorded and then dna has been another um but it's one of those things where dna is is seen to be the kind of gold standard of proof mm. you know there's the lockhart's principle of the transference of evidence something having contact with something else will always leave a trace yeah so dna can be transported or what does the dna prove well it proves that someone was in a crime scene but not when they were in a crime yeah. scene or that they were in the crime scene at the time, or that they were part of the crime, just that they had been, now, evidence on a body, or, you know, so it's, yeah. it's, it poses its own challenges. And now what I'm going to write about is, is DNA and genealogy, because lots of people are putting their, their yeah. DNA onto websites. Yeah. And in America, you can access that. And in the U UK, you can't. But it's a question of defining suspects mm. and traces of distance yeah. of DNA markers. It's just brilliant. Yeah. And you said that you, sort of like, you, know, you asked the police, do you have like certain contacts now that you can sort of like ring up? And, Not as and many as I in? should have. Okay. Not as many as I should have. And I'm going to work on that. Yeah, I've been down to, to met a few detective inspectors in Bristol and they went to their custody centre in a place called Patchway, which is where, you know, a lot of them get diverted. But also what's really interested me is police cuts, you know, mm. how... Yes. how it's affecting the way they're able to work. Ten years ago, different units in the Southwest had their own diving teams. Now Wiltshire, Somerset, and somewhere else 
Gloucestershire share one diving team. Yeah. How does that work? But yeah, the forensic stuff, I have contacts now in, in forensics. I've got my blood spatter expert and I've got my anthropological expert and my yeah. orthodontological expert. Yeah. And they're, they're always really, you know, in the patient, there was a, one I, I met who works at the University of Birmingham who's just brilliant. So yeah, there's always, um, you know, I, I wish I'd res- discovered research years ago because it's yeah. fantastic and it's free. Yeah. yeah. It's just such a, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. And do you find your you know, research at its best is speaking to experts in that field rather than buying a book on it or you know just Googling it and finding a good website online? Or do you still, I, you know, do you have books and online resources as well? Yeah. If we are on picture, I could show you. Yes, I have several books and they grow every week yeah. as I discover new things. A book is very different to, yeah, the, the experts really is when you're trying to, like in book four, I spoke to a forensic examiner in Dundee about a method of death and he kept knocking back what I was trying to do because it wouldn't work. So there's no point in carrying on with that, but it led to a different way of saying, okay, that avenue's closed. Yeah. Then another expert came out with a way of solving that. Not, the, not what I wanted to do, but in a different way. But I, I love reading these things because I love to go back and to be able to go back into books. Yeah. Um, and the trouble is I write notebooks and I'll often write something down from a book and then I'll never know where it was. And yeah. it's just like endless trawling through books with um, not being able to find it. <laughs> do you always take a notebook out when you're out and about away from your house just in case ideas come to you or you know when you speak to people or do you have a notes app in your phone uh when you're away from your office and ideas come how do you store them yeah i have a tiny pocket uh, book in my back pocket okay yeah so that's good and uh, i think I'll, I'll go into my final two questions and we'll expand mm-hmm. on those you said earlier about how you're learning novel writing and you, you hope to improve as it goes forward it's my belief that writers continue to grow and develop their writing with each story that they write. And so was there anything you can think of from book four that you've just finished? Or maybe was there something in The Patient that you learnt about your writing or uh, learnt about you know, police procedurals or you know, sort of, uh, a certain character trait that you then applied to book four that you've just finished? I think the one thing I've taken away and still improving on is a sense of setting. Because in a sense, when you write a screenplay, you suggest what you want. Mm. You're suggesting, in a sense, what you want the director to go and find. Setting something up, atmosphere and a sense of place is, to me, enormously important. And also smell. To give those senses, I, I've been reading this book by John Mullen, who's a Dickens expert at University College London. And he's written a book on Dickens that, talks about smell and it's really interesting to see how dickens uses it so yeah just just learning i'm pretty confident in my plot in as much as how confident can you be when you've got no plot so it's the rest of the stuff taking time to give the kind of fullest sensory experience for the reader so it's just uh, getting that evocative atmosphere setting just yeah, work, working all the senses. Okay, that's yeah. great. Well, that's something I look forward to reading and seeing how that develops. And my final question is, is there one piece of writing advice that at any point in your career that you've received that you find yourself returning to, that you, you consciously keep in mind as you write? I mean, the simplest piece of advice I ever got, which I feel is very important, it sounds simplistic, but is just to write. Mm. And the thing is, to write without having the idea of a completed project in your head. So just write bits, bits of dialogue you've heard, snatches of ideas. Don't sit down to go, okay, I'm going to write a short story. I've got to have a middle, a beginning, and end. Oh, no, a beginning, a middle, and end. Don't sit down and try and do that because ultimately it will not work. But do write every day. Do write yeah. bits. The more you write, the easier it is. And now that being published, you know, I've been asked to write lots of things for papers and whatever and it comes naturally to me now yeah 10 years ago 20 years ago it filled me with horror but the more you write the more confidence you will get and then the other piece of advice is and this is really more to do with editing and film but you can apply it to books which is always chuck out your darlings yeah i think that's a fairly common piece of advice now but when something isn't working 
a sequence of chapters or a sequence of scenes in a film and you can't work out what it is, go in and take out your favorite shot. Mm. Go in and take out your favorite four paragraphs and suddenly the whole thing will work. <laughs> that's great. That's great advice. And I think that's a perfect place to uh, wrap up and uh, say thank you so much, Tim, uh, for being my guest this week. Oh, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And that was the real writing process of Tim Sullivan. Wasn't he great? Now go buy all his books. I'm not saying that flippantly, they're really cheap. And some you can download for free. So get as many of his books as you can, because genuinely, I've, I really enjoyed them. They're very enjoyable. If you'd like to learn more about Tim, or if you'd like to sign up to his newsletter, go to timsullivan.co.uk. Uh, it's got all the information on him, everything that he's worked on, uh, access to his books, and... It's a really nicely laid out website, which genuinely some author websites are horrifying. So it's nice to see one that's really actually good. Uh, so do check it out at timsullivan.co.uk. And in this little outro, I'd also like to make a few thank yous. Firstly, to Tej Turner for generously becoming a subscriber. He's the first guest on the show to do that, which isn't a dig at the other guests, but at the same time, it blatantly is. Also, Dr. Ian Green donated very generously above the minimum £1 required to be a supporter of the show. Yes, he has got his own interview behind the paywall. Maybe he just wanted to access it. But thank you, sir. You did not have to spend that much. But I appreciate it. And I have now used that money for the running cost of the show. So it's already gone. You can't have it back. But yes, if you haven't subscribed or done a one-off payment to access the mini-sodes, please do. And you can find out what Ian says. Or you can just bug Ian for a pirate copy. The choice is up to you. I appreciate we all have expenses at the moment. Um, but that's it. That's where we are this week. Am I going to maintain this crazy high standard of guest for next week? I mean, it'd have to be an extraordinary talent to follow Tim. You know, you, you need to have won an international award. Like, I don't know, a World Fantasy Award. But you can't just win it after years of trying. You'd have to be so extraordinary that you won it on the very first short story that you sold. That's the standard I require. Have I got a guess like that? Well, we'll find out next week. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you always keep writing until the world ends. Time can never be your trusted friend or your sworn ally. No, it's the harshest mistress of all. And life is just a chain of moments spent, a thousand hellos and Maybe a love like ours can leave out its call. I will keep you near until the world is Tides never 